The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, if you're in our time zone, and one of the great things about Zoom and online is we may have uh, people with us where it's good morning or good evening or good night. Uh, delighted to welcome you. My name is Professor Des O'Neill. I'm a consultant geriatrician, professor of medical gerontology, and together with Professor Mary Cosgrove, the Department of German in Trinity College Dublin. We host, we co-chair the Medical and Health Humanities uh, Initiative in the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is the focal point for bringing together research, postgraduate education in uh, the arts and humanities faculties with very generous uh, engagement with faculties such as ours, such as health sciences. Uh, this is the longest running series of medical and health humanities seminars in the Republic of Ireland. And um, the format is very much around uh, giving time for discussion afterwards. Uh, this is through the Q&A function. And uh, so and we, we, we will engage with these as, it, as they come through and uh, comments as well are really helpful. So really delighted to have a, a very much medical history uh, month this month with two seminars in the areas of medical and health history. And I think this is a really interesting engagement because on the one hand, um, one side of uh, medical history has been um, having concerns around it being very iatrocentric and positivist, particularly medical history as written solely by uh, uh, clinicians with an interest or indeed clinicians with PhDs in history. And on the other side, some concerns that perhaps sometimes there isn't enough engagement with perhaps teasing out uh, some of the, what are the implications within, within from the healthcare system, you know, that explain perhaps some of the gaps. So this is a really healthy climate and environment. And we're delighted to have Shelby Zimmerman today to talk through um, the role of healthcare in the workhouses, both the positive and the negatives. And hopefully this will generate uh, debate and interest. Uh, Shelby, I would also have to say, has been our fantastic link person uh, and support uh, in the Long Room Hub for, she's been our facilitator for medical and health humanities. And as she's speaking, I'd like to thank Lorraine McAvoy for providing uh, the backup. So Shelby, Really looking forward to this. Over to you. Thank you so much, Des. And thank you so much for everyone who attended today. So this is still like a work in progress based on my PhD research. So once I'm going to share my screen. Okay. All right. So following the death of 55-year-old Ellen Walsh in the South Dublin Union's lunatic department in February 1913, Dublin City Coroner Dr. Louis A. Byrne declared that the jurors, quote, attach no blame to the staff in charge, end quote. The coroner's jury issued a telling verdict into Walsh's death by absolving the workhouse, or the workhouse's medical officers and nursing staff of liability in the death. Although the overwhelming majority of deaths in the workhouse were attributed to disease or old age, the South Dublin Union's Board of Guardians 
and medical staff played a crucial role in shaping the institution's mortality rate. The Guardian's priorities and perspectives influenced the daily administration of the workhouse, responses to infectious disease, and ultimately the inmates' lives. Using the South Dublin Union as a case study, this paper will examine the ways the workhouse officials contributed to mortality in periods of normal operation and how it contrasted with attitudes towards infectious disease. The research primarily centers on 1913, as this year corresponds with the surviving SDU deadhouse registers and surviving voluntary hospital records, which facilitates analysis into the contribution of the SDU into Dublin's medical landscape for the sick and dying poor. Additionally, the selection of 1913 enables an examination of the role of the lockout on institutional mortality, although it is beyond the scope of this talk. So who exactly was in charge of the workhouse? So Dublin City was divided into two poor law unions with the workhouse on the respective side of the River Liffey. At the time of the census in 1911, the North Dublin Poor Law Union had a population of 179,562 while the South Dublin Union Poor Law Registration District had a population of 226,634. Also, one thing that made Ireland unique, unlike England, for instance, was there was no law of settlement. So you could anywhere you can be admitted from any part of the country. So people coming from Galway, for instance, would be admitted to the South Dublin Union because as a larger workhouse, it did have better medical facilities. So and then for those who are familiar with Dublin, the SDU is on the site of the modern day St. James's Hospital. Given its location on the outskirts of the city at the turn of the 20th century, the SDU property was quite extensive with room to expand upon the workhouse infrastructure. At the national level, the local government board, the LGB, oversaw the operation of the poor law, but the board of guardians served as the local authority for the individual poor law unions. The board of guardians was a professional administrative body that was elected from within the poor law union's boundaries. As the poor law was implemented in Ireland in 1838 to introduce a, a national welfare system funded by the poor rates, the guardians were responsible for administering medical and poor relief while serving the ratepayers by attempting to keep the rates low. The board of guardians was responsible for employing and supervising workhouse officials, including the medical officers. In 1913, the South Dublin Union Board of Guardians comprised 73 elected guardians and 25 co-opted medical uh, co-opted members, which included the medical officers, the chaplains, relieving officers, and the workhouse master. The Board of Guardians was under the leadership of John Scully, who was a Catholic purveyor and grocer, originally from Kings County, which is modern-day Offaly. In 1911, Scully was re-elected to another three-year term as chairman of the Board of Guardians. The Irish Worker, a left-leaning newspaper produced by James Larkin and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, was particularly critical of the administration of the SDU. The newspaper articulated that his re-election was the result of votes from the quote, the bourgeois, the margarine dealers, the slum landlords, and the ward healers who dominate the board, end quote. The Irish worker chastised the Board of Guardians middle oh, chastised the Board of Guardians for being primarily recruited from the upper and middle classes, in which the guardians were detached from the realities of poverty and thus in unsympathetic towards the inmates. So for the guardians, they work I mean, the Irish worker pretty much accused them of thinking the solution to poverty was building more wards in the workhouse 
rather than addressing like the root causes of poverty. So by the end of the 19th century, the workhouse was the predominant and most accessible medical institution for the Irish poor, with the sick and age comprising the overwhelming majority of the workhouse population. The changing status of the workhouse coincided with the professionalization of medicine and a greater understanding of epidemiology. The SDU was one of the largest workhouses in the country with an average occupancy of 3,846 inmates in 1913, yet only employed two resident and four visiting medical officers. In contrast, Dublin's voluntary hospitals, such as the Mead Hospital, had 160 beds in 1913 and 11 medical officers, including specialists such as a gynecologist and a pathologist. The SDU's medical officers were just as qualified as their voluntary, as their voluntary hospital counterparts. Of the six medical officers for the SDU in 1913, resident medical officer George McNamara was the only practitioner that had not previously worked in a voluntary hospital. Visiting medical officers William Kremen and um, Louis J. Farrell were previously employed as the house surgeon and senior house surgeon at St. Vincent's Hospital and Jervis Street Hospital, respectively. In addition to his experience as a demonstrator in anatomy at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, okay, visiting medical officer Frank Dunn also wrote articles about the treatment of tuberculosis in the Dublin Journal of Medical Science. In June 1913, when holding an election for a new visiting medical officer, the Guardians decreed that the prospective candidate must have been licensed for at least five years hold a medical degree, or be a fellow of the RCSI, in addition to possessing at least one year of experience as a resident surgeon or physician in a general voluntary hospital. Through these requirements, the guardian sought to ensure that visiting medical officers would be experienced and reliable to offer the best care and acutely diagnose, or sorry, and accurately diagnose a myriad of ailments while offering the same level of expertise as in a voluntary hospital. It also indicated that workhouse inmates would receive a similar caliber of physicians as if they were admitted to a voluntary hospital. As the medical officers were qualified, any misconduct or negligence would have been as a result of staff being overworked rather than a reflection of their competency. Despite the guardians being responsible for supervising the medical officers, the medical officers were rarely held accountable any misconduct and generally protected from serious repercussions. In the Workhouse Officers Handbook from 1907, the only reference to an officer's misconduct was in the context of corruption and commission of contracts for an officer's private business. Even if a case of potential misconduct did not result in a coroner's inquest, the LGB or the Board of Guardians were unlikely to penalize the offending officer. For instance, when Dr. W.B. Jennings and Dr. McNamara conducted an unauthorized postmortem examination on inmate Peter O'Neill in 1886, the SDU visiting committee recommended that Jennings should be forced to resign and did not recommend any disciplinary action on behalf of McNamara's contributions. Despite the recommendation for Jennings' resignation, he remained employed as a medical officer. The fact that Jennings maintained his employment indicated that the visiting committee did not have the authority to coerce Jennings to resign, and that it was easier to create the illusion of discipline 
than to hire a replacement. Historian Kim Price argued that in an English context, it was rare for a medical officer's misconduct to result in a complaint and eventual trial. He noted that investigations of English poor law medical officers were more of a disciplinary tribunal conducted by poor law officials rather than an impartial jury, especially as there were no standardized definitions of negligence and made it harder to prosecute a medical officer for misconduct. Alana Tompkins noted that in England, the medical officer's contract was with the poor law rather than the patient, which influenced who could make a case against an officer. This level of protection at the local level was also granted in an Irish context. For instance, Dr. McNamara came under scrutiny from the Board of Guardians throughout his over 30-year tenure at the SDU and did not face any repercussions. Additionally, as workhouse inmates and their families were poor, they were unable to afford to bring a negligence case to court, thus hindering penalizing the offending officer, as well as determining the scale of misconduct in the workhouse. Further research is necessary on the legal components of negligence and misconduct in England, as the historiography is solely in the context of the English poor law unions. So how exactly did medical officers and the guardians contribute to mortality? So although the Local Government Act of 1898 prohibited workhouse inmates from serving as nurses and provided rigid classifications and delineated responsibilities for professional nurses, inmates were still able to serve as attendants with permission from the medical officer. In September, 1895, Catherine Wood was commissioned by the British Medical Journal to inspect the conditions of several Irish workhouse infirmaries based on the journal's assertion that the infirmaries were overlooked by the guardians and in urgent need of reform. This inspection followed the BMJ's investigation of provincial English workhouses, thus revealing these issues were not unique to Ireland. Okay, sorry. Wood visited the SDU's infirmary and noted a ratio of one trained nurse per 45 to 50 beds. In the evening, there was one nurse stationed in the male and female wards, respectively. Due to the dependence on pauper deputies, one, one or more attendants would be assigned to a ward in the evening, thus primarily placing the responsibility of nursing in the hands of untrained inmates. Wood, who was the former lady superintendent, of London's Hospital for Sick Children and founder of the British Nurses Association, advised the Board of Guardians to establish a training school for workhouse nurses and to increase the amount of trained attendants in the infirm wards. Wood acknowledged the Guardian's reticence to implement reform for financial reasons and reassured them that from the long experience in these matters, that after the first outlay, the work would be done with greater economy and efficiency, and the South Melbourne Union would take the position that belongs to it of right, that of the pioneer in the matter of workhouse reform. Although the Guardians adopted a defensive attitude towards the SDU administration and sought to discredit Wood as an inspector by claiming she fabricated evidence. As a result of the Guardians ignoring the BMJ's recommendations, there were no improvements and either the staffing ratios or the competency of nurses and attendants. In 1913, the SDU employed 29 trained nurses, including 19 Sister of Mercy nurses. Historian Katrina Clare 
noticed that poor law unions supported employing nuns as nurses as they were inexpensive, giving the convent's charitable mission, despite the LGB failing to implement minimum training qualifications for nursing nuns. However, almost one-fifth of the SDU's population were employed as inmate attendants. Of the 716 inmate attendants, 415 were employed in a medical capacity. The use of inmate labor created a ratio of one day attendant for every seven patients and one night attendant for every 20 patients. The lack of professional nurses was not unique to the SDU, in which the provision of, nurse, of nursing staff varied across the country. For instance, in 1913, Cork Union had a day ratio of one nurse to 60 patients and a night ratio of one nurse to 200 patients. Given the inmate attendant to professional nurse ratio, patients were more likely to be attended to by an unqualified inmate, especially in the evening. According to Kim Price, pauper attendants were more likely to be aged or chronically ill since the younger and more suitable pauper attendants frequently left the workhouse. More work needs to be conducted on medical negligence and pauper nursing in an Irish context, especially as Price's analysis of the English workhouses contrasted from Irish local government board inspector F.J. McCarthy's inspection of the SDU in October 1913. McCarthy claimed the overwhelming majority of pauper attendants were healthy, in which two-thirds of the men employed as attendants were from the able-bodied wards. The LGB authorized the Board of Guardians to hire as many qualified and trained nurses, in addition to attendants that were deemed sufficient to adequately attend to all of the patients in the infirmary and hospital. By creating employment standards for ward attendants and a protocol for employing inmates, the LGB sought to minimize the presence of unqualified staff in medical wards and thus reduce the risk of death associated with the use of inmate labor. However, the use of inmate labor saved the guardians money, even though the maintenance of the inmates was at the expense of the ratepayers. Rather than offer the inmate attendants a salary, they were compensated with a better diet than the standard able-bodied inmate and a weekly ration of tobacco. In contrast, the salary of a trained nurse and a qualified nurse started at 52 pounds and 45 pounds annually, and they were required to live on site. Because of the incentives provided to pauper, ex uh, to pauper attendants and a light workload, McCarthy accused the SDU guardians and officials for encouraging these men to remain in the workhouse and receive special privileges rather than seeking external employment. For the guardians, it was cheaper to provide extra rations to inmate attendants rather than hiring a suitable amount of qualified individuals. But one of the crucial duties of the workhouse nurse involved notifying the master whenever a patient's changing condition required the services of the medical officer. Without medical training, pauper attendants were unaware of various symptoms and unable to ascertain if the medical officer should be summoned. Despite the LGB's authorization to hire trained nurses and Wood's recommendation of establishing a nursing training school at the workhouse, the Guardian's continued reliance on inmate labor contributed to institutional mortality. For instance, on the 2nd of February, 1913, epileptic Ellen Walsh died in the SDU's lunatic department from shock following burns. 
In the case of Ellen Walsh, the pauper attendant, Anne Connolly, did not observe any signs of burns, thus depriving her of receiving immediate care, which could have been prevented if professional nurses staffed the wards. Nurse Margaret Hare expressed dissatisfaction with the staffing levels in the lunatic department and noted, quote, I had been left without a night attendant on that ward and on different other nights as well. One woman is not sufficient to mine 40 refractory patients at night. And this night attendant, Ann Connolly, has given me no satisfaction this long time." End quote. During the coroner's inquest, one of Walsh's sons interjected that the manner of his mother's death reflected the mismanagement, okay, mismanagement, uh, mismanagement of the institution. The Board of Guardians' reluctance to hire qualified nurses in order to reduce the financial burden on the ratepayer resulted in overworked nurses relying upon untrained pauper attendants to monitor the wards. As instances of negligence were primarily brought to the guardian's attention when subjected to a coroner's inquest or a workhouse official sought to conduct an inquiry, it hindered ascertaining the amount of related deaths. Actually, in the case of Ellen Wall, she had both a coroner's inquest and visiting medical officer Farrell um, actually launched his own inquest to figure out or his own like, investigation into the death and finding out why the wards weren't staffed, as well as how she felt, like how there was no protection, considering that she fell out of bed onto the hot water pipes. So as evident, yeah, as evident by Walsh's death, poor nursing policies and the use of inmate labor reflected mismanagement of the workhouse and strengthened the connection between staffing and mortality. In addition to debts attributed to the guardian's reluctance to hire additional trained nurses, the inmate's health was also jeopardized by the guardian's economic, endeavor, economic endeavors. In February, 1913, the SDU Board of Guardians appointed a committee to investigate the union's keeping a pig on workhouse property for financial aspirations. Historian Juliana Edelman noted that raising pigs was considered a financially, financially lucrative investment in which the owner could expect a return of over 100% of the piglet's original price. However, pigs were considered a public health nuisance. In the post-famine period, Dublin Corporation and public health officials sought to remove animal waste from the city and restrict manure yards to stables and dairies. The SDU's piggery contained 134 pigs and thus produced extensive quantities of manure. As the piggery was located in close proximity to the creche, garden infirmary, and other hospital buildings, guardian John Byrne argued that it was hazardous to children and the sick. As these individuals had weakened immune systems, they were more vulnerable to infectious disease. According to Byrne, quote, there are always great complaints about the very heavy death rate of children in the creche. There are over 4,000 people in the union, and there's a great deal of sickness and deaths which the piggery may be the cause of. There cannot be any doubt that it must be unhealthy to the hospitals and other buildings around it, end quote. Since July, 1912, the SDU experienced at least 12 cases of typhoid fever in the nursery and the creche. The creche department was an old building that was not renovated to comply with contemporary sanitation protocol. It had poor sewage and drainage facilities resulting in the accumulation of water and the disposal of refuse in one corner in the ward, sorry, one corner in the yard. Typhoid 
also known as enteric fever, was a waterborne disease that was caused by the presence of salmonella typhi in water contaminated by sewage. The proximity of the crash to the piggery in conjunction to the ward's poor sanitation made the children more susceptible to contracting typhoid and other ailments that could have been produced by animal waste. Although there was no evidence of SDU inmates directly dying as a result of exposure to the piggery, the unsanitary conditions of the piggery would hinder overall health and increase the risk of disease. Due to the profits generated by the pigs, the guardians place a greater emphasis on their well-being than that of the inmates. In his investigation into the SDU piggery, as a member of the board's appointed committee, Byrne estimated that 1,200 pounds, I'm sorry, 1,200 pounds was spent annually on feeding the pigs. The Irish worker asserted from their investigation that milk was given to the pigs and that hungry inmates stole food from the piggery. In response, LGB Inspector McCarthy recommended that a railing should be installed, or to be installed outside the piggery to prevent access for the inmates. The Irish worker was highly critical of the Guardian's priorities and the lack of support from the LGB and proclaimed that it was, quote, better to be a pig than a pauper in the Scully controlled institution, end quote. In her letter to the editor of the Irish Worker from September 1911, inmate Claire O'Brien of the SDU's female infirmary department wrote on behalf of her fellow patients to describe how inmates suffered at the hands of the frugal guardians. According to O'Brien, the sick were served adulterated milk as it was cheaper than pure milk. Since the milk contractor had friends on the board, he or she was not prosecuted for violating public health mandates. She recalled being served half-boiled and decaying cabbage, resulting in the women complaining of diarrhea. She directly caught out the guardians for prioritizing the ratepayers by stating, quote, the guardians, many of whom are supposed to be elected in the interest of the poor, know all this. They know the food we are getting and they are not making an effort on our behalf. It would appear that the majority of the present board of guardians were elected for the purpose of putting down the rates. No doubt they are doing it with a vengeance, but we are hungry." End quote. The attitudes of the SDU guardians regarding the management of infectious disease marked a clear distinction from their approach towards ward conditions and everyday life. The guardians adopted proactive measures to identify cases of infectious disease and deterred spread throughout the institution, thus seeking to reduce mortality associated with disease. However, the proactive approach towards infectious disease prevention reflected the guardian's desire to avoid the financial costs associated with an epidemic while ensuring contagion did not permeate through society rather than a genuine concern towards the inmates. Their attitudes towards infectious disease emphasized protecting society from outbreaks by swiftly identifying, isolating, and treating any potential source of contagion. The Guardian sought to isolate infectious patients by erecting auxiliary wards. During periods of crisis, the workhouse was prepared to accommodate infectious patients rather than transfer them to dedicated fever hospitals in order to increase the city's hospital provisions. In the 1870s, in response to smallpox outbreaks, the SDU guardians established the Kilmainham Auxiliary on the rear side of the property, as evident in the map shown, to function as a smallpox hospital. 
So like the wooden sheds could easily be built during epidemics and subsequently raised when the risk of contagion waned. As indicated by the map, the Kilmainham Auxiliary was located far from the able-bodied wards and other medical wards. The guardians relied upon the auxiliary sheds to isolate infectious patients and to relieve the overcrowded fever hospitals. During the smallpox epidemic of 1871 to 1873, the Kilmainham Auxiliary employed a separate staff of medical officers and nurses to prevent the transfer of smallpox into the main infirmary buildings. They also prohibited visitors from entering the sheds to further curb the spread of infection. During suspected epidemics, the local government board mandated the Board of Guardians to make provisions for medical aid and hospital accommodation for individuals suffering from the infectious disease. In February, 1897, Dublin experienced an outbreak of smallpox and measles. The LGB commanded the SDU guardians to erect a hospital that would treat sick and convalescent measles patients from both the NDU and the SDU. So as previously noted, because the SDU was in, had much larger, had a, was on larger property while the NDU was next to um, the House of Industry Hospitals and the Richmond District Lunatic Asylums. It was in a much more congested area, as well as just lacking the space to actually build the auxiliary wards. So as the sheds were utilized by both unions, the guardians for the respective unions were responsible for paying half of the cost. Using the workhouse ambulances, the guardians arranged for the transfer of measles and convalescent patients from the Cork Street Fever Hospital to the Kilmainham Auxiliary. The collaboration between the Cork Street Fever Hospital and the SDU enabled the Fever Hospital to make the beds occupied by convalescent patients available to new cases while demonstrating the SDU's initiative to prevent the spread of contagion in the workhouse and in the city. The workhouse officials also prevented institutional mortality by partnering with other medical institutions to ensure inmates receive proper care. Guardians transferred infectious patients to fever hospitals. As these institutions were exclusively reserved for fever and infectious disease cases, they were better equipped than the workhouse hospitals to treat and segregate infectious patients. In 1885, the SDU entered an agreement with the nearby Cork Street Fever Hospital regarding the admission of workhouse inmates, devising a fixed rate per inmate depending on the amount of total patients in Cork Street, regardless if they came from the workhouse or not. Although the workhouses were legally mandated to transfer all fever patients to an appropriate institution, workhouse officials also paid to transfer inmates to specialist institutions if necessary. In his testimony, to the Dublin Hospitals Commission in 1887, North Dublin Union physician, Dr. Joseph E. Kenny, reiterated that workhouses were equipped to perform amputations and other routine surgical operations. He advocated for the expansion of specialist medical departments in the workhouse to be a further assistance to the poor. By providing medical services that were considered on par with the general hospitals, the workhouse elucidated its legitimacy as a medical institution. However, if an inmate required treatment that was outside the scope of the workhouse infirmary's capabilities, the union would pay for them to receive treatment at another institution. For instance, the SDU guardians approved Dr. Dunn's request 
for her child to be sent to the orthopedic hospital for treatment, as it was not an appropriate case for the workhouse infirmary. Guardians also sent inmates to general hospitals, such as Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital and the Mead Hospital, if necessary. Inmates were also transferred to the Richmond District Lunatic Asylum if they were perceived as unruly or would benefit from being in asylum. As the medical and ward staff in the workhouse lunatic department were not trained in managing and treating lunacy, lunacy, the workhouse was unsuitable for severe cases of mental illness. And one thing that was really interesting is both like the Richmond District Lunatic Asylum and the North and South Delvin Union workhouses were unsure on who actually was responsible for the care of epileptics and other chronic patients because both institutions did not want to have long-term patients. The transfer and covering the cost of maintenance indicated that the workhouse actively sought to prevent mortality by ensuring inmates received adequate medical attention. For the parsimonious Board of Guardians, covering the cost of treatment at a specialist hospital would have been cheaper than employing a specialist visiting medical officer because the salary for the visiting medical officers was between 150 to 200 pounds annually. Since the average length of stay in the Mead Hospital, for instance, was 33 days, the cost of paying two shillings per inmate daily would have been cheaper than hiring specialist staff and equipment. Additionally, sending inmates to specialist institutions would have reduced the burden on the ratepayers by potentially curing a sick pauper and thus preventing the need for long-term workhouse emission. Without knowing the average daily cost of maintaining an inmate in the workhouse, it raises questions into the cost of maintaining a patient in the institution and whether the guardian sought to discourage supporting an inmate for life. The workhouse officials' initiatives to reduce the transmission and mortality of infectious diseases in the late 19th and early 20th centuries demonstrated a divergence of the workhouse attitudes towards disease during the famine and a changing function of the institution. In their study of mortality during the famine, Timothy W. Gwinane and Cormac O'Grada observed that those who contracted dysentery and diarrhea tended to die within a few days. If a person died soon after remission to the workhouse, it was plausible that the inmate was sick upon demission. However, deaths that occurred weeks and months after remission would have been the result of contracting dysentery and typhoid in the workhouse. Gwinane and O'Grada also noted that large-scale mortality months after remission was a reflection of the institution's mismanagement, especially regarding treatment of the sick. However, in the post-famine period, the poor law placed a greater emphasis on the provisions of medical relief, thus authorizing the Board of Guardians to adopt a systematic approach towards infectious disease. Despite maintaining its popular association with infectious disease, the workhouse diverged from its famine counterpart in the late 19th and early 20th centuries concerning infectious disease. The experiences of the famine demonstrated that administrators learned how to better medically manage the emission of sick inmates and isolate the infectious. So in conclusion, the Board of Guardians and medical officers' priorities and consideration for the ratepayers shaped their influence on institutional mortality. The Guardian's financially frugal measures benefited the ratepayers as they were the group that elected the Guardians and ultimately held them accountable. Workhouse administration adopted proactive measures to reduce institutional mortality 
when, it's, when it was seen as beneficial to the rate payers. Guardians were the most preemptive regarding their treatment of, their, of infectious diseases. By rapidly isolating contagious patients and paying to transfer inmates to fever hospitals, the guardians avoided the cost of erecting auxiliary wards for infectious patients and closing wards for sanitation. This approach saves ratepayers money by preventing the expenses associated with the construction, maintenance, and staffing of the auxiliary wards. Additionally, the guardians were able to protect the community from disease outbreaks by swiftly transferring infectious patients, identifying the source of infection, and creating makeshift infectious disease wards if or when necessary. However, workhouse officials and administrations contributed to institutional mortality when an issue was inconsequential to the ratepayers or would diminish the public's trust in the institution. The Guardians fervently sought to discredit the British Medical Journal's investigation of the SDU and rejected all suggested reforms in order to maintain the impression of the workhouse as a reputable and well-managed institution. Although the workhouse system was abolished in the 1920s, the issues raised in this talk are still pertinent in modern institutions. The treatment of the South Dublin Union inmates by the guardians raises questions into the provision of medical care for the poor and other marginalized groups, for instance, such as prisoners. So for instance, do prisoners receive substantial medical treatment in the prison? So even though like workhouses weren't a carceral institution, they were, but like you weren't sentenced to a workhouse, it's still kind of different, but it's the only thing I can think of as like a modern day comparison. Then how do these attitudes towards prisoners and the poor as well shape the provision of relief? And then as well as how are staffing rates and workloads in medical institutions assigned to prevent negligence, especially today with the outbreak of COVID and the strain on the health system? So thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, Shelby, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. And I think you ended on a really appropriate note, which I think is what we can learn from history. I mean, I think this is hugely important. Uh, you know, uh, those who forget history are, uh, you know, condemned to repeat it. And I think the first part of Santayana's piece is often forgotten, is that progress, far from consisting of, staying, uh, of change, uh, is largely based on conservation, as is in the uh, the engraving on the top of the Library of Congress here. So absolutely uh, fantastic. And I think uh, linking this up, uh, certainly I've been involved both in the care of prisoners, uh, where we've been able to show, for example, their um, confidentiality is eroded in hospital settings um, and that we really need to up our game here. Um, and uh, also in nursing homes, I was involved with the review of nursing home standards at Lee's Cross in 2006 and would still have major concerns that many of the issues you raise um, that the and indeed the ministerial panel in Ireland uh, following COVID clearly outlined that the, um, the focus of attention on medical uh, services in nursing homes in Ireland lacked uh, lacked uh, clear mission uh, focus uh, resilience. So um, and I, I think where history helps us is in teasing out the perhaps bringing out into the open the 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 influences around financial gain, the influences or influence around prestige, the influences around stigma for certain conditions, 
um, you know, the more we can bring these out, the more it helps the present day health system. And this is why medical history is so important. So um, great, great talk uh, and lovely to see some reference there. I'm not sure whether or not uh, Professor Coakley is on online, but uh, his magisterial book on St. James's Hospital, the current a successor to the South Dublin Union with St. Kevin's in between, um, I think uh, uh, brings out uh, the these elements. Um, so a couple of questions and comments, don't want to monopolize it, but as I said, really enjoyed it. And um, I think we'll make a great series of papers. And certainly uh, if you ever need any help in perhaps bringing out some of these liaisons in modern day care, more than happy to oblige. So um, comment to, uh, Thanks, Shelby, for a comprehensive talk. I enjoyed seeing the work as part of a hospital network in Dublin that allowed inmates to be defined as sick uh, to be treated apart from those simply enabled poor. Do you know if the workhouse's medical staff drove the closer arrangement between the institution and other hospitals? And do you think personal networks between the doctors and guardians played a role? Um, let's see. So That's it in, in the chat. Have- Rather than Q and A, yeah. Yes. Okay, so it's really interesting because some. Um, thank you for an interesting question. Yeah, I haven't really looked too much yet about like the differences between the doctors in like the voluntary hospitals compared to the workhouse. But like, I would assume though that because of their previous experience in those institutions, they would have or they would know where is like a good institution to send someone or as well having the connections. I'm trying to. Yeah, I need to do a lot more work into into that because it's recently I was looking at the qualifications of the voluntary hospitals but one of my other chapters that I'm working on next is actually going to compare treatment in the voluntary hospitals so I'm hoping that would also help answer that a bit better yeah I mean if I might come in a little bit from the from the side here there has always been an extraordinary level of hierarchical um esteem uh, and prestige associated with certain jobs. So the networks may actually have been, you know, I think people sometimes assume Uh, all doctors are what's all. So it's interesting around the time of Graves and Stokes and the Irish, sorry, Corrigan, Graves and Stokes mm-hmm. and the Irish famine, uh, there was considerable concern around how the College of Physicians and uh, King's College of Physicians, the Queen's College of Physicians, were engaging with the uh, dispensary doctors who were on much worse pay and conditions and indeed at risk of uh, illness. And um, certainly, uh, you know, there there is a literature out there of doctors who work in these settings being perhaps often divorced from uh, the the uh, broader mainstream of uh, doctors. Um, the oh, next, sorry, actually, a, sorry, something else, something to add on that. Sorry, and it yeah. made me realize that because, um, like, in like a work, sorry, in a medical student's handbook for Ireland from like the eighteen eighties or so, I'm trying to remember they were talking about the different like employment options for, you know, medical graduates. And they were saying that with the workhouse, yes, the conditions weren't the best and you kind of needed to know someone to get a job. However, this was like stable employment. They were like, if you can get a job in the workhouse, like you're solid. And I also kind of think that there were the connections, like for instance, um, George McNamara, for instance, his grandfather was Rawdon McNamara, who was president at RCSI. So I think that also kind of played a role and that kind of gave him a level of he's a bit untouchable because of who his relatives were. 
Certainly, certainly elements of that. So in the Q&A, uh, not a question, but a matter of interest, uh, there were a series of Irish cases about whether medical officers and workhouses and county homes were legally liable in any, any way where inmates received poor care. Uh, presumably the current law on medical negligence did not apply at that time. Uh, have you any insights into the whole issue of medical negligence and where it might have fitted or? Uh, not yet. I kind of really need to look more at that because again, like looking at like the mm. medical officer's handbook, there was nothing written about anything with what constituted neglect or what was misconduct. That it, again, it was more of like if an officer was hiring, like was using a contract to support their own private business, which I actually saw in relation to a guardian purchasing an organ in 1913 for Town, And because that guardian happened to own the pawn shop where they purchased it from. So I haven't really seen anything about, of course, there were no penalties for that person, mm -hmm. but um, it was just, I haven't seen anything from a medical standpoint on what was neglect. And anytime something came up with that in the minutes, it was always reflected onto something else. Like when McNamara, for instance, didn't examine a patient upon a mission and she died because it was too late. Well, instead, the investigation focused more on nursing rather than, well, why did he do a shoddy job examining her to begin with? Very interesting, very interesting. Um, uh, the the uh, I might come back to that that interesting point on nursing and its articulacy and its abil ability to have a voice. Uh, uh, question then around uh, how much does uh, obviously we've seen the BMJ report, but how much discussion of institutional failings was there in the contemporary media? There was actually um, was pretty well covered in the contemporary media. So the board, I mean, so the, the national newspapers would actually attend the board of guardians meetings. And that's something that Lauren Arrington actually talks about is how unlike the Irish Times, the Freeman's Journal, for instance, the um, Irish worker actually conducted their own investigations because they were like, they considered how much they despised Scully and the Guardians, but they sought to do their own investigations to kind of get more of like a nuance into that. But um, no, everything was covered. All, all the meeting reports, they're all in the newspapers. And what was interesting is when the BMJ report came out, it was actually the Freeman's Journal and the Irish Times defending the South Dublin Union. They were like saying to the Guardians, like, you need to release a statement saying that, like, um, you know, like disproving wood, you need to prove, like, protect your reputation. So interesting. Well, then, like, how in a union in Cavan, for instance, when their investigation came out, the medical officers and the board actually wrote in the newspapers, let's just hide this, let's prevent it from coming out. So they were definitely aware of what people saw. And even um, the poor, at least families, used the newspapers to intervene on their behalf as what led to, um, to actually raise, you know, to challenge the guardians and to bring awareness into various issues. Um, uh, Two things struck me, but the first one is um, the degree to which, how organized were nurses in those times in terms of the nurses reporting themselves? Obviously, if they were only talking about setting up a school in 1895, it was relatively underdeveloped. Do we hear any organized nursing voice or is it just too early for that? 
I think it's still a bit early. I know there's like the Irish, I think the Irish Nursing Association, I assume. I mean, because in the 1880s is when the nuns enter the workhouse as nurses. So I think really later into the century is when you start having designated nursing training programs. But that's definitely an interesting point to look up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that same edition of the BMJ uh, had something about nuns as nurses in Ireland. So it's um, it's uh, very topical. The other thing that fascinates is the interest of the trade unions in this area here. And um, goodness me, I'd love to see trade unions in Ireland taking an interest in uh, residential care. Um, Do you think this is part of a broader view at the time by unions or had they an angle around employment for for people in the in the SDU and other uh, unions or what was your sense of of that extraordinary interest of the unions in the care? Part of it was that the guardians were nationalists. I mean, there was a bit of a political divide between them. I think it was also a lot of it was employment. Like part of the reason they despised Scully was how they accused him of hiring like non-unionized laborers, that he wouldn't know what fair prices were for his bakery. There was this whole thing. So very much about how the workhouse even employed non-union laborers. And again, like Lauren Arrington has a really fascinating article claiming that because of how much the guard, like how, how what the records was, what if the poor law union represented and how much they despised the Board of Guardians? That was the reason why the SDU was targeted in the 1916 Easter Rising, because they were claiming that site had no significance. It was more what it represented to the trade unions because of how the guardians like treated um, laborers. Now, that's a fascinating angle and certainly one I hadn't heard before, having been indeed a consultant at St. James's for five years and a, and a researcher there. Um, know that that's really, really interesting. And uh, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that comes out of prison medicine and is, is a thing called Croker's Dilemma. And Croker's Dilemma is, do I serve the prisoner or, uh, for the healthcare? Do I serve the prisoner or do I serve the institution? Yeah. And I think often this is a dialogue that's very subterranean in healthcare the degree to which we unconsciously ration, uh, unconsciously incorporate uh, prejudices or stigma against poor, uh, poorer people. Do we have much of narrative? Obviously, this is a very disempowered group. Uh, do we have much by way of narratives from these three and a half thousand inmates or oral history or folk history? Yeah, it's hard because um, there was one inmate, A.J. O'Brien, who was literate he was i think he was a veteran and he was in the workhouse because he like lost the legs he was there for like medical relief and he actually wrote a lot of letters to the guardians and of course the guardians all suppressed it but someone from the irish worker actually came spent the afternoon with him and like interviewed him about his experience and he kept diaries so there was like mostly what i saw from like inmates themselves is in the context of the Irish worker or else it'll be more of families that would be reporting because like with like the Peter O'Neill case, for instance, I mentioned earlier, it was brought to the guardian's attention because the mother visited the institution. So the mother was reporting to the newspaper about what she saw. So you kind of get it from like more of a secondhand account from people who, whose relatives were in the institutions. 
Absolutely fascinating. So look, um, we've we've come to not far off the end. Uh, it's it's really been. Oh, um, we got further question in, and you know we're not we, we haven't fully. The North Dublin Union. Well, there was. Do, do we know was there much difference between the outbreaks and the management of the NDU and the SDU? The NDU was fantastic in 1913. I wish I could incorporate it in this talk, but I didn't know how it would flow when doing all SDU. So there was a typhus outbreak in 1913, and there were 11 deaths on the north side of the city and two on the south side. So the NDU they managed to isolate all the typhus patients. They created a special auxiliary ward for typhus patients, hired special staff. They disinfected the existing wards. They conducted an investigation to trace where all those typhus patients came from to see if it happened in the workhouse or if they got it from their tenements. Like they were very proactive with the whole thing. As well as what else did they do? They even had one patient who was um, elderly and they couldn't transport her to a fever hospital. So they actually made a special ward just for her and hired her own nurse to prevent um, anyone else from like interacting with her. So she got the care she needed. I mean, ultimately she died of nephritis. So whether or not she actually had an infectious disease, I do not know, but they were very proactive and I think it was their efforts which is why typhus did not spread to the South Dublin Union. Fascinating, really interesting, and really interesting how such a you know a variety can take place in you know, I suppose a large city for the time, but uh, still a small city in many ways. Yeah. Well, listen, we've come near to the end. I think that has been absolutely fascinating. We've had a, a large attendance, um, a lot of uh, discussion there. We can only wish Shelby the best with her publications and PhD around this. I think it's going to be absolutely smashing. Just to announce for uh, 20th of April, two weeks time, we've got Dan O'Brien from Bath for when the pulse won't yield a fee and the perceived relationship between medicine and the funeral trade in uh, 18th century England. Uh, absolutely fascinating and something, again, I think increasing interest in discussing uh, death and uh, Seamus O'Mahony's book recently around death. And indeed, uh, some of you may, may have noticed a, a, a new book on the, the funeral trade in the United States reviewed in last week's uh, Financial Times. So really looking forward to that. Big thank you to Shelby. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks to Lorraine for backup and Courtney. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.